P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. A rising rate environment. What's that going to do to the real estate business, to homeowners? Let's find out from Mark Stefanski. He's the chief executive of Third Federal Savings and Loan. Mark, thank you very much for being with us. Just start us off by telling people a little bit about Third Federal Savings and Loan. Okay. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, my, my parents started Third Federal back in 1938. My, my dad practically invented the home mortgage business. And so I'm second generation. Uh, we do business in 23 states now. We have stores in Ohio and Florida. Uh, yet we, we do business in 23 states via the Internet and direct mail. And we make more home mortgages than anyone else in the state of Ohio. We, we, uh, Mark, we were talking earlier with our Bloomberg News colleague about uh, some concerns among some congressmen that there are insufficient opportunities to provide credit for small and mid-sized businesses. I'm wondering, from your vantage point, you have a, a really good view into middle America. Uh, do you feel that this is the case? Well, I, I do think that uh, the regulatory environment is, is hampering uh, those kinds of loans and that kind of expansion in the economy. Uh, Can you give us an not, example? Uh, well, it's just Dodd-Frank in itself requires, uh, let's say for a homeowner, if you own your own business, uh, the, the ability to repay is a huge, huge issue because you have to show that you have uh, uh, W-2s and you have to have uh, tax returns to show your income to prove that you can pay for for the mortgages. And that's 10% of our business, and it's really hard to get those people qualified because not everything is always shown on a, in, a, in a W-2 form or on their tax returns. And uh, people who own their own businesses are very, very uh, stuck right now in trying to get home loans. And that's the middle class, that's the middle America that everyone's been saying, well, it has to grow, it has to grow. But specifically, that stymies the growth in in that particular uh, area. Have you been able to, I mean, you're, you're based in Ohio, as, as you said, I mean, have you been able to make your concerns and these challenges known to the officials uh, that maybe could uh, could affect some kind of change? Well, uh, right now, uh, no, uh, it, it doesn't matter because uh, all those concerns fall on deaf ears. Uh, yeah, because the Dodd-Frank has, has taken over the industry. And, uh, well, I think right now, I think everyone in the industry and I think the general public is more optimistic given uh, given the new president and the, the, the push for uh, more of a or less uh, emphasis on regulation, I think that that's going to be very helpful. But uh, but to to try to appeal to the regulatory body or to Congress or to anybody, it, it falls on deaf ears, or has fallen on deaf ears, especially in the last eight years. Mark, can you uh, 
just sort of square something for me because there, I, I just want to contrast what you're talking about as far as credit conditions being too tight with uh, a lot of fears of excessive froth in other parts of the credit market. You've seen that in corporate credit. And uh, just this week, the Federal Reserve eyeballed commercial real estate as a potential new area of froth. So you think that that this is an inaccurate description of of the the sort of bigger credit markets, or do you think that these are just completely bifurcated markets at this point? Well, I think that uh, regulators, uh, regulators um, they don't know what they don't know. So they're always looking for the next next big thing to hit. And, and I can't honestly say that when uh, the regulatory environment has guessed, they've guessed right. It's usually they do a very good job of cleaning up the mess after something's happened. And uh, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's what's happening with Dodd-Frank, yet there's unintended consequences where, you know, big banks are basically the targets, but it's trickled down into all the banking and all the mid-sized banks, all the small banks, they're being choked. We are being choked by the regulatory environment. Uh, and it's to the detriment of the economy and detriment of, of people that once qualified uh, at Third Federal, for example, that they don't qualify because we had to change our our, uh, criteria. Based on the demand that you're seeing, is the economy operating at a 2% GDP or is it operating at slower than current expectations? I think it's a little slower. Um, However, I think it is better. Uh, We were very, very stagnant there for a long time. I think there's optimism in the air. I think the, uh, the, the when the Fed moves on, on an interest rate, whether it be up or down, uh, that gets people excited. Mm-hmm. And I think the anticipation of uh, the Fed. Would you like to see the Federal Reserve raise interest rates three times uh, this year? You know that they, they they could, and I don't think it's going to have a dramatic effect on on the uh, uh, on the market the consumer. The, really, why is that? Well, I, I just think that psychologically, people right now are in a real good place. People are very optimistic. So when when the Fed raises rates a little bit, it gets people more excited that they might go up further. So you get more volume coming in. But frankly, I, I don't see how those those changes in interest rates are going to dramatically, you know, affect the, the consumer demand for for homes. I, I just don't think that it's going to move enough to put people that much out of the market. And, and think about it. When most of us were growing up, interest rates of, of 7 8 9% were norm. And I w- I've been around long enough, I saw 15%. Um, that was horrific. And, and now we're down to 4% and people are complaining that the rates might go up to 45 or something for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. That's not so bad. Although, you know, some people have said that in the in the wake of these incredibly low interest rates that we've had since 2008, uh, that housing prices and commercial real estate prices have gotten away from themselves and that as people, uh, as the Fed raises rates and as borrowing costs rise, we're going to see a sort of deflation of these bubbles. From your experience so far, do you observe a slowdown in demand or anything that suggests that there is a weakening in the housing market? No. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite because I think a lot of it, whether it be um, in any sector of the economy, 
uh, tends to feel, be fueled by um, uh, the perception uh, and, and consumer confidence. So I think the consumer confidence right now is pretty darn good, as good as it's been in the last eight to ten years. And uh, I, I think that's going to go a long way. And, of course, we'll find out in the next four years uh, how good that optimism will, will hold. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Mark Stefanski is the chief executive of Third Federal Savings and Loan. And you know, uh, Lisa, that uh, his parents, uh, Ben and uh, Jerome, uh, they uh, started Fifth uh, Third Federal uh, Savings and Loan. They started it in 1938 with just $50,000 in initial capital. We've heard a lot of news overnight uh, about President Trump's conversations with the Australian and Mexican uh, leaders, and some of the language has been uh, sort of sort of incendiary, uh, to say the least. I want to bring in Marty Shanker, who uh, heads the Washington Bureau for Bloomberg News. And Marty, I want to start with uh, what your take is on what we've heard overnight. Is the U.S removing itself from its longest standing allies, or is this just bluster? Well, it would appear so. Um, but Donald Trump tweeted just a little while ago, not, you know, not to be concerned about his tough talks with uh, our closest allies. And, you know, uh, and uh, Tim O'Brien has an interesting view piece today in which, you know, this notion of Trump having this grand plan and all of us in journalism trying to figure out just where everything fits and he says that's a fool's errand. This is coming from his gut. It's spontaneous. He feels he's doing the things he said he would do once he got elected. And he feels that the U.S. has been just too nice to the rest of the world, friends and foe alike. So he's going to do things his way. Hey, Marty, uh, uh, fair disclosure. Uh, how long have we... I mean, I, I got to say, everything I learned, I think I learned at your knee at the Wall Street Journal. I'm not not sure. But and I was just 12 years old. Uh, right, yeah. Well, we were both in short pants. Uh, uh, you know, um, it's been a long trip. Yes, it has. Um, uh, what, in your bones, in your gut, all right, you talked about uh, the president's gut. You're a, a, a journalist through and through. In in your gut, what what is going on and what needs... I mean, you can't do this on a regular basis. In terms Why not? Of, well, mm-hmm. that's my question. In other words, something's got to give. Well, right? look, there. It's been like two weeks. He's been president. He does. He had very few members of his cabinet in place. Correct. That's being. You know, we just saw Rex Tillerson to, at the State Department, and you know, he was. He's basically keeping the counsel of his closest advisors, Steve Bannon, uh, and others. Um, and he hasn't had the benefit of, you know, real-time communication with people with experience, people who are respected in their fields. And I think he has not been able to, and he's always said he likes to hear dissident opinions. And by all accounts, he's a great listener in private. And so I think that things can very easily be more moderate in nature going forward but I do think his impulsiveness will never go away. And um, for those of us who say to ourselves, this is going to slow down eventually, I think you got to guard against that. I think that he, the, he has decided this is the way he wants to communicate. 
And in fact, this is the way he wants to express policy, and he's going to continue to do that. What's the color that you're hearing from the Republican establishment in Congress and beyond? Well, they are steadfastly behind him. Uh, You know, I don't know. uh, I have stated privately that I think that his support among the Republicans is razor thin um, and that he it's a tenuous relationship, but it is a solid one um, for for now. I think the immigration uh, proposals that he had tested that relationship and the Republicans lined up pretty solidly in favor of perhaps not the messaging, but the the policy itself. So and, and the majority of Americans support it, too. So I think uh, the Republicans are going to stand by their president until such time as they themselves are threatened in terms of re-election issues. Marty, can you just give us a reality check? Some people hear the rhetoric of President Trump saying he's going to invade uh, Mexico uh, in a conversation that the White House now says was just a tough talk and, and a joke. Um do you, at what point, just taking this to its extreme, at what point does this lead to a real military altercation? Well, I think we're pretty far away from that. I think Donald Trump got a stark uh, example of what military confrontation means with the first death under his watch. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, that is a very sobering moment for anyone, and especially a president who ultimately is responsible for all military activity. So, I do think that a lot of these conversations, when they're put in print form, in text, look a lot more vitriolic and are cast without context, without the nuance of an actual conversation. And I think people tend to overreact to that. Let's turn to our allies for just a second. Uh, Phone calls with uh, Prime Minister Turnbull in Australia. Uh, What's been your, any detail you can shed, anything you can no, I mean, it, we have not been able to stand up that communication, you know, that was broken by the Washington Post in great detail. And you got to assume someone who was privy to those conversations decided to leak it because they were concerned about it. Um, Just to be clear, it was a conversation where uh, President Trump allegedly said uh, that uh, it was the worst conversation that he'd had all day and basically right. threatened him with the refugee agreement that they had, uh, that, that the U.S. previously came to with Australia. Right. And, and, and the... Australian leader Turnbull later said, look, you know, uh, he was dismayed about the leak and that the actually the ending of that conversation was uh, courteous. But be that as it may, Donald Trump came out and said, you know, don't worry about my tough talk. He has decided that he is keeping his promise. America comes first. He was very upset about this immigration deal and he was going to let Turnbull know. And he did got to affect businesses yes i right? mean, I I mean think... you know you kind of i know you stop there on the political side but then you got to turn your attention and say okay so what is the effects here because you may be able to run a government as you just described it but it's very hard to run a business no it's totally using true. the same skills and that's why this meeting with ceos tomorrow is kind of in my tell view, us about it uh, critically important well this is his business council these are people he asked to advise him on policy and everybody from Jamie Dimon to Gina Rometty. And it's uh, very, it's going to be very interesting, the tenor of what that meeting is is going to be. Uh, will they come in and say, Mr. President, you're wrong on immigration, you're wrong on trade, 
you're wrong on taxes? Or are they going to sit with hands folded and listen to Donald Trump say, this is the way it's going to be? Um, and, you know, they're from all parts of industry and, and banking and finance. So it's going to be interesting if they even have a unified message to give him. Well, if, uh, if they do, or even if they don't, we're going to be covering it. Marty Shanker, thank you very much. Senior Executive Editor, Global Economics and Government for Bloomberg News. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. I want a story of innovation, of how to look at the world today, make sense of it, and then find an investment uh, that is somewhat reliable. I want to bring in Paul Mortimer Lee, Global Head of Market Economics and Chief Economist for North America at BNP Pariba. Paul, where do you begin when you start with assessing your economic outlook? Uh, begin with the facts uh, is a pretty good place to start. Um, where we've been and look at, you know, basically where the surveys are telling us we might go next and what the settings of policy are. So, you know, the surveys currently look for the U.S. look pretty perky. Well, let's look, can we just like piece it apart just because I know tomorrow we're going to get the big payroll report number that'll uh, help people at least uh, confirm or deny their trajectory projections, you know, compare all that. But as an economist, just run through it for us. GDP is running at at what? We got a print of 1.9 the last quarter, I believe. Yeah. What are we running at now? Well, you know, the uh, Atlanta Fed is saying for Q1, their latest GDP now forecast is 3.4. Okay, so uh, we're three. Okay, so let's just say that Atlanta uh, Fed GDP forecast three point four percent for Q one. Un- for Q one, uh, unemployment four point what? We're four point seven, and you know, we're pretty flat. Maybe a bit of a downward trajectory for the unemployment rate going forward. Okay, um, you know, so part- labor participation rate moves or just stays I, I where think it is? I think he's going to be pretty flat, more or less. But um, you know, the, if even if we've got growth of just two, that's above potential. Okay, be- because the labor force is increasing increasing by, say, half a point per year. Productivity in the year to Q4 was only 1%. Right. So maybe productive potential is one and a half. So if we're running at two or above, unemployment should keep drifting down, not very quickly, because there are far fewer people out there than there used to be, but it should be drifting down. All right. And for and for Lisa, I know you want to know about inflation, because inflation is all about bonds. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I, I was just going to say- What's the I mean, cost here? Well, yeah, I mean, but beyond that, I mean, beyond trying to look into the crystal ball, nobody can predict the future. Uh, I'm wondering, do you feel like you're less confident than you've ever been before with your predictions? Or do you think that people are overreacting to some of the uh, macroeconomic and the political backdrop and that there is a very clear road ahead? I I think people, you know, I think we've seen a tendency for the markets uh, just after the November elections to run off in one direction. And recently, people are kind of 
extrapolating things in the other direction. Um, because I think a- the technical term is they're walking back their <laughs> estimates. <laughs> Right, they're driving with the rearview mirror. Maybe, but you know, it's difficult to come out with very firm expectations about where we're going to go on trade and fiscal and all these sort of things. So, little spots of information that you get are very valuable because it's all you've got. But there's a tendency to extrapolate them. I think. So, do you think that people have uh, overinflated their expectation, expectations for inflation? To your point, Pim. No, I, I don't think so. I think you know, if you look globally at where we're going on inflation, inflation's going up. And you see that in the producer price index in China, for example. You've seen it in Europe. You see it here. We've got a unit labor cost print just today of 1.9% for the business sector. And the core measure of inflation that the Fed likes is 1.7. So it's very likely to go up. And you know, one thing I would say about the Fed statement yesterday was that previously they said, we believe inflation will rise. Yesterday they said, inflation will rise. So they sound more confident about their prediction of inflation. So what does that what does that mean for investors? Does that mean that bonds are are a bad bet? Three and- rate hikes, one rate hike, right? One rate hike a quarter. Well, I think you know many people at the Fed have said two or three rate hikes this year, and I think that's reasonable. The market's pricing at about thirty percent chance of uh, March. I think that's probably too low, but. I think the market will probably price in a bigger chance, particularly if we get strong payrolls tomorrow, that probability will go up. But I think the Fed ideally would like to see what exactly are the fiscal plans? What, what exactly will growth be? And and it won't get that till the second quarter. And that's why I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about March. Given this backdrop, what do you think is the one single best asset class uh, for this year? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not an asset allocator. I'm just a humble economist, and so I. What's I'm your What's g- your biggest contrarian bet? Uh, well, I think you know the the biggest contrarian bet is that we we're going to see um, more more growth in the global economy and probably more growth in the U.S. economy over the next two years than people expect, and I think that's partly because the momentum coming into this year is pretty strong globally, and you know U.S. manufacturing looks very good despite the strong dollar, and we're yet to see fiscal stimulus. Thank you very much for joining us. Paul Mortimer Lee, look forward to having you in the future. He is the head of market economics and the chief economist for BNP Paribas. Matt Levine, Bloomberg View columnist, you wrote a really terrific column talking about how, first of all, a lot of people dismissed uh, President Trump's rhetoric pre uh, his election as simply talk and that he wouldn't actually come through on that and that now people are realizing, well, perhaps they were mistaken. Um, First, can you just talk about what you've observed about how the reaction has been uh, shockingly surprising when he's come through on a lot of what he said? Yeah, there's like there's two things going on here, right? One is that people listened to what he said and thought he didn't mean it. And so Trump talked about cracking down on trade and immigration throughout the campaign. Those were his focuses. And people sort of assumed he would turn out to be a conventional Republican president and be interested in economic growth and tax cuts and deregulation and things like that. And since the inauguration, it's been pretty clear where his focus is, and it's exactly where he said it was. So I think some of the business leaders who were expecting a very conventional uh, presidency are getting uh, this very unconventional 
anti-trade, anti-immigration presidency. Well, but why wouldn't potentially this end up being just as good for them as they thought if he does go ahead and follows through with cutting regulations and cutting taxes? I mean, why wouldn't this be a benefit? Well, one thing is that a lot of business groups were not um, so happy about the trade stuff. You know, the, the, we live in a global economy and a lot of American businesses are multinational companies. And so they're going to lose out by the crackdown on trade. But the other thing that's happening is that, you know, even if eventually we come through on the deregulation and tax cuts that businesses want, I think that they underestimated the risks of just sort of the instability of the Trump presidency. And you saw that with the executive order last weekend. It's one thing to say we're going to cut back on or, or even eliminate refugee programs. But what happened is that they eliminated them while people with valid visas were in the air. They told green card holders that they couldn't come back to the country. And then after a sort of weekend of controversy, some of that was, was walked back. And so what you have is this totally um, sort of whimsical policymaking process where real people are getting caught up in these decision-making, in, in, in these decisions that don't really have much um, uh process or thought behind them. And I think what companies are realizing is that that affects them too, right? Like the rule of law is pretty central to running a big multinational company or running a big company in America. And you need to have some predictability and stability. And what they're seeing here is an administration that is not really interested in those norms and is is uh, is willing to create a lot of instability. Well, Matt, let me just push back a little bit here, because if you read speeches that at the time uh, candidate uh, Trump uh, was crossing the country, I believe, in fact, there was one in in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, where he laid out very specifically what he planned to do if elected president. And uh, I would imagine, I mean, I want to know who are these people that are so surprised, first of all, because if you've, I mean, he is not, uh, it's not as if he's deviated during the campaign from, you know, the set program of whether it is uh, trade policy, whether it is uh, financial regulation, uh, or, you know, variety of things. Um, How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, I, I would disagree that he laid anything out specifically or clearly, right? I mean, you have... Every policy position he took, he took he took out every policy position at some point during the campaign. You know, right now there's pushback from the White House saying that the immigration order is not a Muslim ban. But of course, during the campaign, he put out a press release saying we'll have a Muslim ban. So it's not really clear what he said. Yeah, I mean, but he said a lot the, of things. We're but, not in a court of law here. I mean, this is not you're yeah. not you're not, but, you're not parsing each things. I'm just saying that he's set out pretty clearly what well, his policies were going so to look like, I, right? I, I agree with that. I think I think there is a constituency, and you know, like the, the sort of leading light is Anthony Scaramucci, who's a Trump advisor, who sort of gave interviews saying he's going to make smart trade deals and, and not have a Muslim ban and, and, and do all these things that, that are more conventional Republican policies. And I think that some of the people in that sort of New York financial circle heard that. But the other thing that I'm saying is that even, even leaving like policy disagreements aside, what I think people are surprised by is the uh, just sort of haphazard uh, nature of the Trump administration where there's not a lot of respect for process or for the rule of law. And that is is what I think is going to become more concerning. You know, you have companies that say, look, you know, trade is trade policy is, is, is one thing we can disagree substantively. But having a president who is going to attack companies that disagree with him politically, either by tweets or by 
uh, you know, suggesting that the Justice Department hold up mergers of, of media companies he doesn't like, which is something he said. Got to read a little history. Well, I, right. I it, mean, it then is, you got to be a little bit informed that this is something that there are many images of uh, of even executives uh, tangling with the U.S. government. Right. Yeah. Well, but this is but I think that, that uh, Matt, you raise a point that uh, Cass Sunstein of Harvard made as well, which is sort of there has to be the sense that the rule of law is a consistent and reliable way of an application of law. And if it's sort of arbitrarily crafted or tar- to target specific companies or specific issues, it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, you, you what you what you want is a sort of predictable uh, environment in which to operate, where you can kind of know that your investments will be respected and paid off. And I think that's what people are worried about right now. Great point and great column. Thank you very much, Matt Levine. Look forward to having you more in the future. He is a columnist for Bloomberg View. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt underscore Levine. His column, Stability is Good for Business, Trump's Whims Threaten It. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.